0: Today on CityCast Denver. When it comes to homelessness, Denver seems to be out of ideas. Or maybe there are too many ideas, or maybe just not the right ones. Denverites looked outward for answers this week. First to Houston, where an astonishing 25,000 people have been housed in the past decade. And then to a radical idea that's been percolating on the far left for years. So today, we invited our pal, Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh, who reports on housing and homelessness for Westward, to put these two ideas side by side and ask, what would help our unhoused neighbors more? Housing first, or cash? Today is Friday, September 23rd, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. I love that I'm reading such a Paul intro about pizza. Can we do it? I can do it. I just—it's definitely your writing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, are we good? <laughs> okay. Welcome back to CityCast Denver, the show about a city with wildly underrated pizza. That is not my original thought. Couldn't agree more, Bree. That's Paul's thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's Friday. We're back in the Lindy Zimmer studio at Westward talking about the news of the week. I'm here with my producer, Paul Caroli. Hey, Bree. And we're here with Westward staff writer and CityCast Denver contributor, Connor mccormick Kavanaugh.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So uh, before we jump into the serious stuff, next week is unofficially pizza week, as we've declared here at CityCast Denver. And Heck Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you have any clue who's behind this push for pizza week, but it's not me. Um, it's eat-
2: exciting. We're, I think no, it is exciting. We're getting into
0: the spirit of it. No, absolutely. I'm actually curious to see what we find out. Me too. I really don't know. I, I, I don't know much about the pizza landscape other than what I've learned from you.
2: Well, here's what I hope happens. Um a descent into insanity, where we all come out sort of like changed and having learned about the deepest, darkest corners of this city's pizza oh. ovens.
0: Oh, Paul. Connor, do you have a hot pizza take?
1: Uh, I think it's a, a beautiful food.
0: You're an East Coaster. Same with
1: yeah.
2: Connor. That was lovely. Keep going with that. No, I just, nice. I just think it's a,
1: a beautiful food. Um, I, I eat it pretty often just because i it, it gets the job done and it, it's just delicious and like the sensory experience associated with pizza especially when it's fresh out of the oven and hot and it's a whole pie that's made fresh for you and the cheese is melting and you really get to kind of experience the idiosyncrasies of a specific pizza type it's it's beautiful
0: wow you're just like Speaking Paul's
2: language. I love is, it. That was it, it. Pizza inspires the, the, the mind. It,
0: it gets you to think in new ways. Maybe this is how a lot of us feel about burritos. I think so. I think that that's what I'm feeling because I don't have this passion for pizza. Not that I don't love it. I'm also a cold pizza person. Are you guys mm-hmm. cold pizza people?
2: Not really. Okay. There's never any left.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I'm also not a leftovers person, but pizza I'll do. Mm-hmm. Well, we want to hear from you. We want your hottest pizza take. You can leave us a voicemail with your name and neighborhood, and you might hear it on the show next week. Our number is 720-500-5418. Now that we've got our pizza business out of the way, um, we're going to talk about two stories this week that showed off exactly where Denver is when it comes to housing and homelessness. Um, So there was this trip to Houston Uh, Last week, a delegation of elected officials from Denver, uh, the Denver Metro, I'm sorry, because this was Denver and Mm -hmm. Aurora, um, flew to Houston on sort of a fact finding trip because Houston has, according to The New York Times, um, successfully moved 25,000 people off the streets and into homes in the last 10 years. Um, Connor, can you tell me about that trip in particular for our elected officials?
1: Yeah. So it was um, a trip that was organized by the city of Aurora, actually, um, which is interesting because I had originally just assumed that Denver would have organized it. But um, Aurora is up to some pretty uh, innovative stuff, even if their politics sometimes seem chaotic.
0: I was going to say, mm-hmm. I-, I feel the push and pull of like Mike Kaufman... Uh, The mayor doing the sort of cosplaying homelessness stunt, that did not go well. But then there's some very progressive folks on council that want to do something different.
1: I mean, to his credit, Mike Kaufman went on this trip and there were two other Aurora City Council members, two Denver City Council members, and then two Denver Metro County commissioners who went on the trip. And then there were some other staffers from Denver, like the mayor's deputy chief of staff, Evan Dreyer. And so they were going to Houston to on a fact finding mission because this article in The New York Times had come out over the summer. That was very laudatory of the way that Houston has handled homelessness and housing. And there's a, an example at the beginning where they're talking about um, kind of dismantling an encampment in Houston. And the big thing is there were, there were really no issues with the residents of that encampment because they were all put into housing, um, transitional housing or permanent supportive housing immediately. And so there was no um, kind of clashing or where am I going to go or kicking the can down the road. And Which is t- what's been
2: happening in Denver for 10 years straight. Absolutely. For no change. Like constant conflicts like on the street corners downtown. You can't go downtown, home because you don't have a home, but you can't stay here. Almost every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just Everyone agrees this is the problem.
0: I've I watched it happen out in front of my house this week, actually. A gentleman was parked his RV. Someone called the police. It wasn't us. And hmm. they showed up right away. So I don't know what the option would be for him. So that's a, that's a great point, Paul. So, yeah. So they went to Houston to see how it's done.
1: To see how it's done. To talk with service providers there. To talk with uh, politicians there. Um, they did... A site visit of a uh, soon-to-be-finished navigation center that's being built in a, a former charter school, um, but then the the majority of the time they spent in Houston City Hall just meeting with folks and, and hearing what's worked. And I uh, reached out to a, a bunch of the different folks who went on the trip, and I said, "Hey, what are, what are your lessons learned?" And a big one is that Denver Metro really needs to cooperate on homelessness as a region, and not have kind of isolated cities and municipalities working on this issue. It has to be a team effort. So it's not just a Denver issue. It's not just an Aurora issue, but everyone has to get on board with this. And we've we've heard ideas of this for a long time. You know, decades ago, it used to be just viewed as, oh, that's a Denver problem. So if there were people experiencing homelessness in Centennial or Englewood or even Aurora, those folks were just assumed to be um, Denver's homeless population and so there, there was no kind of um, motivation to help out in that regard but people are starting to evolve in in their mindset and um, there seems to be good buy-in for doing a region-wide approach now wh- while there's buy-in it's you have to actually do it and so that's that's what we need to follow going forward
2: I'm so so dubious of this region-wide approach. Like, not that it's not a good idea, but I was I was just reading this morning about this story that I had remembered a few weeks ago out of Douglas County. You know, mm-hmm. a region-wide approach requires the whole region to get on board. <laughs> Douglas, Douglas County, not going to want to have anything very, to do with it. Uh, yeah. I mean, they most re- their most recently
0: actively said that.
2: I I hadn't seen that, but I, I believe mean that you. they
0: don't. It's just not something that they're going to deal with.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I was talking The story I read, They their last thing they did was they put people experiencing homelessness into cars. They paid for cars to just drive them to other parts of the Metro. Hancock complained about this. Kaufman complained about this. Like, I don't think that's a good basis for a relationship that could evolve into some, some, this Houston model here. I don't know. That's just one problem though. There's like well, a lot to talk about.
1: No, you're a hundred percent right. If we think about Denver Metro, Douglas County, would definitely be the outlier in any cooperation on this for years they've contributed next to nothing um, on this issue in terms of uh, a financial footprint and you listen to what um, the politicians there say and they generally um, don't seem they wouldn't i i can't imagine they'd be super eager to get involved on this matter the same way that a denver or an Anglewood or a Centennial now or an Aurora would. They very much view this as not their problem. And um, I think they'd be quite happy if, if there was homelessness to exist that it wasn't in Douglas County at all.
0: Yeah. I, it's such a NIMBY and political problem in viewing it this way because human beings don't adhere to geographical. You know what I mean? Like you don't you're not like, well, I guess I'm not homeless because I live in Douglas County. Like it just doesn't it doesn't jive with the realities. And I I appreciated from the 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 New York Times article about Houston, like this was the main thing that they did was they broke down those barriers and said, we have to work together or it's not going to work. And I I'm always skeptical of articles that say like, oh, look, this thing solved homelessness. And I don't think they necessarily characterized it that way. But it's easy to Mm -hmm. look from the outside and say something has done. Like, I think Salt Lake City had a similar PR situation a couple of years ago. Like, we've solved homelessness. And people working on the ground were like, well, we haven't, but we've done a lot. And so I I guess I, I was skeptical of this trip because... I don't know. I got plenty out of that article. What did they do? You know what they saw, Connor? was. I. You know, did, did Councilman Hines or, or uh, Councilwoman Say the Baca say anything like revelatory in what they they got out of their trip?
1: Uh, Councilman Hines told me something that was very interesting. And it kind of goes to your point of did they have to go to Houston to figure this out? One of the slides that they got in a PowerPoint presentation there said that Houston got its inspiration for the way that it kind of started working on homelessness from Denver's road home, which is is the
0: Hickenlooper era plan to end homelessness. Homelessness, Um, a 10-year
1: plan to end homelessness. And again, I mean, that was the 10-year plan to end homelessness was a tagline that um, the federal government asked mayors to do across the country. Um, it wasn't Hickenlooper who came up with this idea, although he, sure,
0: no fair. I just his. This was sure. the era.
1: This was the era. No, but it was a Hickenlooper um, project, mm-hmm. the Denver's Road Home, and it obviously didn't get Denver home. It it had some positive elements, and one of the big ones was getting entities that worked on homelessness in Denver to collaborate. Better get out of their silos, and um, you know, because there's competition for funding. There's there's essentially competition for like what specific areas people work on. So these service providers haven't always been super cooperative among each other.
2: I mean, they have different ideologies too. Like some are very rooted in faith-based communities, and some are feel the opposite. Like that that has no place in this system. Yeah, and that's like a huge barrier for some people.
1: Uh, Volunteers of America, that's an offshoot of the Salvation Army because they disagreed over philosophy many years ago. And so Denver's Road Home was successful in bringing folks together, but then they kind of – it didn't last for a long time. And that program was not well-funded at Mm -hmm. all.
0: Well, and I just want to say this – Denver's Road Home was rolled out in 2005. Were you guys here in 2005? Okay. Like, it breaks my heart, and I'm sure that people working on housing and homelessness issues – still from that time are equally frustrated because it was a different city then it may have felt even more like we could tackle it. Like there's a little bit of frustration thinking about the opportunity that we had at that time mm-hmm. and how we maybe have
2: bungled it. Yeah. It does feel like insurmountable now. It feels yeah. like a really, Oh my really God. Big it problem. feels
0: like, yeah, it feels like a problem that is continually being fed by a, you know, a housing market that's unattainable and, you know what I mean, things that were not the problems of 2005.
2: Can we talk about this other thing that Houston is doing differently? So there's, there's the unifying all these organizations into this one continuum um, that we don't have, but then they also have really put a priority on what they call a housing first model. How is that different from what we're doing, Connor?
1: So it's, I mean, in terms of rhetoric, it's no different from what Denver is doing. Denver talks, the mayor talks, Britta Fisher, the head of the Department of Housing Stability, they talk how Denver is housing first. It's this idea that rather than requiring people living on the streets or in shelters to get a job or kick a an addiction before they can start accessing housing, the idea is to give them housing help them connect them with housing first and then people have a much better chance of figuring out those other difficult things in life like getting a job if you haven't worked for a while or kicking uh, a tough addiction and Denver's been talking about this. We had the social impact bond program a few years ago where it was a housing first. Program and it had really positive results, and we, we saw um, people being a lot more successful uh, when when Denver used a housing first approach. But Denver doesn't have a truly housing first approach because there isn't enough housing. There isn't enough deeply affordable housing that's you know less than thirty percent of the area median income. So given that it doesn't um, have enough affordable housing. When, when sweeps are happening, it's not a housing first approach. There's no, hey, we're going to dismantle your encampment and here's a um, a unit to go into. That It's it's not that. It's just like we were talking about before, kind of moving people around.
0: But you're touching on the thing that I think is the biggest issue, one of the biggest issues here. It's very complicated, but that we don't have the housing. And I think I feel like Councilwoman Say the Baca has talked about that aspect. It's like, when are we going to force some affordability in this private market? Like, how is that going to happen? Because so far it hasn't. And again, 2005 Denver, there was so much housing. I know I was looking, you know, mm-hmm. I lived in apartments at that time. It was a very different um, landscape, but how could we even implement something like Houston's model if we don't have anywhere to, to house people? Well,
2: That's where I got to when I was reading the article, and then I kind of turned a corner when I saw um, a comment that Chris Hines made to our pal Chris Walker at 5280 um, about this question of, like, what's the real problem? Is it housing? Housing too expensive? Where's the uh, quote-unquote affordable housing? Like, okay, so here's what Chris Hines said. Um, He was recounting a conversation with Houston's homeless czar. And this person apparently said, housing includes three things. So when they're saying housing first, they mean three things. The housing, the funding for the housing, and the funding for supportive services. He said you have to have all three legs of the stool for the stool to stand up. And I thought that was interesting because, and this is Heinz saying this, because when people think of housing, they often think of the structure, not necessarily the funding streams related to it. So I think maybe the issue here is that we've been focusing a little too much on the affordability of the units and not enough on finding the money to pay what it costs, whatever it costs. And it's more about our values and our choice to dedicate that funding stream, to actually recognize housing as a right, to recognize this model works, and make that
0: choice. There's a lot of money in this city, and maybe that's part of the problem. We're just not directing it to the things that... Are needed which is to build a housing at whatever it costs like you're saying paul like we can't change the cost of supplies we can't change the cost of labor we have to do something and what is that
1: two interesting things in the mayor's budget and this is with um, american rescue plan act money from the federal government Um, one it's about 20 million dollars to purchase a motel and transform it into um, supportive housing Units, uh, which which is a a, a great use of um, pandemic relief money, because yeah. that money is not going to repeat itself. It's it's kind of a one time thing, so it makes sense to do a one time purchase. And then there's a, another one that's also around twenty million dollars to purchase a motel and turn that into uh, a transitional um, center for people experiencing homelessness, kind of what Houston um, is is almost done building right now in the former charter school and where the um, politicians visited, it's this idea of you you can get people from encampments to this transitional center, and then they're in there, they have um, kind of a a more dignifying, sheltering um, situation for a short period of time, and then you can get them into housing. So those are two purchases, hopefully, that are coming in the near future.
0: Well, and I also do want to say it's not to say that those things aren't also happening. It's just like not enough, you know, oh, it's, I'm thinking yeah, about, drop in the pond. you know, yeah, like it's, it's not that there aren't affordable housing developers out there trying to do that. It's not that the city isn't doing it in some capacity. It's just not enough. So, I want to move on to this second story that really intertwines with this conversation about housing, which is the Denver Basic Income Project um, kind of blew up into a national story. So it started out uh, how would you characterize how it started? It was a nonprofit venture.
2: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I think it started with
0: a rich guy who a twinkle in
2: Elon Musk's eye that there should be electric cars, and then this guy named Mark Donovan decided to invest in Tesla before it went to the moon. Over the pandemic, he made a boatload of money and started feeling really guilty. And he saw this homelessness problem in Denver and thought, "What do I do? What do I do with all of this enormous wealth I've acquired?" And he decided to give it away. $1,000 $1,000 a month to 10 people. I don't know how he met these people, but he just started giving He's it away.
0: A private person in the world that said, yeah. I wanna try this thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I so just think this is crazy that this is now a city of Denver authorized program and that's how it started, but yeah. No,
1: yeah, it's It's a pretty wild story. I mean, um, Mark Donovan lived for a while in, in Bali, in Southeast Asia, and um, he had a, a, like a clothing company that he made, his, that was his career for a while. And then he's making money during the pandemic, um, the early months of the pandemic off his stock. Um, he's living in Denver. And yeah, like he had this realization like, Hey, um, you know, I should probably give back to the world. And so he, he got this idea of kind of giving people um, stipends or basic income each month. And he went public with his project in June 2021 and um, it's, and he's, he seems to be quite good at, at fundraising and he's brought a bunch of different partners um, on board and it's grown and grown and grown and so now DU um, researchers, University of Denver researchers are involved and there's going to be a very strong research component to it. And so he's raised millions of dollars too and now there's going to be over 800 people who are going to be involved in this Denver Basic Income Project Um, The city of Denver is getting involved, too, providing $2 million. And that money is specifically earmarked for women, both cisgender and transgender, and families. And I asked the city why they specifically chose those populations. And they said because they've been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic in terms of homelessness in Denver, um, which I thought was um, a valid enough response to justify it. And so, um, but the, the, the entire project is open to more than just those populations. So it's open to people, um, experiencing homelessness, living in shelters, on the streets, two, two things that, um, are disqualifying factors is if you have, uh, substance use issues issues or severe untreated mental health issues, you cannot, um, participate mm-hmm. in the programs so you can't receive money but it's going to be 260 people get or maybe we should just explain what what basic income <laughs> yeah I, is. Think that, I, think so. I think
0: that's really important because people really will see important. this ubi thing floating around and it's one of those things that is just like I don't know what that means
1: yeah so I mean ubi universal basic income is this idea that um, the floor of people's incomes across the country should universally be higher than it is now. So if you have a universal basic income, you're kind of lifting everyone's floor. And Andrew Yang, when he was running for president this past uh, presidential election cycle, he was one of his big campaign issues was UBI. He wanted to implement a UBI. And we've seen um, UBI kind of be implemented, it's obviously not universal when it's implemented in these smaller projects, A certain amount of money each month was implemented in Vancouver um, as part of the New Leaf Project, and it had really positive results. And so, um, yeah, the Denver Basic Income Project is essentially exploring and researching. We're going to give people X amount of money each month. These people are living on the streets or in shelters or in their cars. They're homeless. And we want to see how this impacts their lives. Um, what are the positive benefits? Are they able to secure housing more easily? Are they able to pay uh, a down payment or I guess a deposit it would be for a rental unit because that can be tough sometimes? Are they able to more easily apply for a job just because they have a bit more stability?
0: And the difference in this approach, I think it's important to notice, this is putting cash assistance in the hands of folks to make decisions for themselves about what they need, right? So it's not like, you know, you have to go to a food bank to get food or apply through a program to get a voucher to do a, what, you know, whatever, or get a navigator to get you into the system to get this, you know, maybe you just need new glasses, you know what I mean? Like, not that like, you know, the Stout Street Clinic isn't doing amazing things there and stuff. But this idea is like, just give people money to take care of the stuff that they need. And So I just wanted to make that clear so folks understand that this is like pretty radical when you think about a government saying we're just going to give folks, you know, a check every month.
1: It's pretty radical for the U.S. especially. I mean, this is so not what we've done as a country, um, at least in recent history. And so, yeah, it's money, no strings attached.
0: Well, Paul, when we were talking about this story earlier before recording, um, I don't I feel like you had an interesting reaction to this idea.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I I guess I feel a little bit like personally touched by this whole story because, you know, I see Mark Donovan, uh, fellow white guy moving around Denver, seeing the same things I'm seeing. Um, I also early on in the pandemic had that moment where I realized this is going to affect other people way more than it's going to affect me. What can I do? Is there anything I can do? You know, and uh, at the time, my wife was working for the city, and she got redeployed to one of the temporary shelters that was being set up for people experiencing homelessness. So she saw what was going on, and what was going on was there was chaos. It was not enough help, not enough of anything. No one knew what was going on. People were all scared. People were being taken advantage of. Just a horrible situation. And then because I'm on the St. Francis Center uh, newsletter, they're a day shelter downtown. I saw they put out a call. They said, all of our usual volunteers are elderly and so they're staying home and our staff just had an outbreak so we have no one to work the shelter is there anyone that can come help and that was late march 2020 so ever since then i've been going in every week a little bit less frequently lately and i actually just decided to stop doing it but that that was my response to the pandemic and i feel like this mark donovan guy had his own and it was like embraced by the city. But for me, my experience of engaging with this topic at this horrible time was the, the the total opposite. It was like I'm now afraid of paternalism more than anything. Like I read about this housing first policy in Houston and I got really excited because it takes these – It takes the shelters. It it flips the power dynamic. You know, the UBI thing is appealing for the same reasons. But I think if we have data that the the Houston model works, we need to really try as best we can to avoid that paternalism. Because you see it every day in the shelter. You see people get taken advantage of. You see people get pushed down, pushed around.
0: What do you mean by paternalism in this
2: I think it'd be helpful if I offered an example. Yes. So the way that the storage system works, St. Francis Center offers space. There's a room where you can put your stuff. So that's cool. You know, that's a great resource for people. It's because people get stuff stolen all the time, like constantly. Um, The way it works is you have to be there at 9 a.m. when the person is available for 15 minutes to sign you up for a storage space. You have to sign a contract. you have to be escorted back to the room and out of Mm. the room you have to be diligent about updating your storage space there's so many rules there's so much management it's really hard to get it right because you're living on the street like things come up sometimes you miss a deadline and then what you lose all of your clothes your winter clothes your winter coat then you have to get a new one it's just like all of these systems that we make people interact with, we just process people through, they're just creating problems. Like they're just compounding problems. And when people
1: rely on them, they get stuck. I think the the optics of a rich man who made money yeah. in the early stages of the pandemic off Tesla stock and is now wanting to have that revelation of I want to do good, I want to give away this money. I could understand... Um, kind of where you um, struggle with the, like, that's paternalism. Um, Because I think it it really could be. I think the way that the Denver Basic Income Project has evolved has taken away a lot of that. It's become less like a, it's not a cult of personality, like Mm -hmm. nonprofit project now. It's like a very kind of robust, and it seems like somewhat horizontal kind of governed structure now. um, that seems like a pretty legit nonprofit project structure. And so I who knows, I'm not, you know, in their meetings, but I I think that paternalistic element has been taken away a little bit. And I I I think there is, of course, something with, you know, helping people living on the streets with all these different services could come across as paternalistic, but then I think the flip side of that is giving people money um, and letting them kind of get back the autonomy in their lives um, is kind of the opposite, or maybe it's almost the opposite.
0: Hmm. Autonomy is a great way to look at it too. It's something we really take for granted when we don't have to worry about stuff. Yeah, for you sure. make your own decisions. You decide when you eat. You decide when you go to bed. You decide where you put your You know what I mean? You don't have to like do all of this like hyper management of every moment of your life. That like if we had to do all that on top of what we're doing every day, I would be stressed out too. I don't understand how folks handle it. I really can't imagine what that's like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm thankful every day that I'm not in like an institutional setting, like a homeless shelter or a jail or prison or some sort of setting like that where you really don't have.
0: You don't have autonomy. Any autonomy. But I think that's also why it's so crucial that folks of us, those of us that have that societal autonomy, talk about what we need to change Mm -hmm. because we have the power to change it. And I think that's the. I hear the struggle with this like rich guy does well thing, but also like I don't know how do we just redistribute wealth then <laughs> you know? well, I know. well i don't know what
2: if we put these two stories up against each other you know how do we how do we comp- see the basic income project in the context of a housing first model or like what that could look like in denver because i don't know how well i think it fits
0: i think it works great together personally, like give someone housing, okay, then so much good stuff comes from housing that we don't think about like this. It's the the housing first approach is opposite of these things that say get your shit together before we give you this. And I think there was a great metaphor for this in the houston story in the new york times it said it's like a person is drowning and you go out and you say well i'm going to teach you how to swim first i'm not going to save you Mm -hmm. and it's like that's kind of how it is so to me if the housing first if we can do housing first get folks in the home and then give them a little bit of money they could start to figure out the things that they need to take care of and prioritize just like all of us that are housed do already and then i think it could I don't know. I see them working together, but Paul, I think yeah. you're very.
2: I, I I'm skeptical. conflicted about the UBI part because I think that I mean there's another quote from Hines about uh, Mayor Kaufman on this Houston trip that I think is worthwhile. Hines was describing like how what Kaufman was curious about and how he was interacting with the Houston officials. Chris Hines told Chris Walker at fifty two eighty that Mayor Kaufman asked a lot of questions about jobs, <laughs> and the homeless czar in Houston kept driving home the point that they had only one metric: taking someone without a home and putting them into a home.
1: So I, I reached out to the city of Aurora to see um, if I could kind of get some reactions from Mayor Kaufman. And they pointed me in the direction of, they said, did you see his Facebook post? So I looked at his Facebook post about it. He's very he's very good about posting on Twitter and Facebook, all his thoughts. And he said he was very um, intrigued by this kind of more collaborative approach, but he's still very skeptical of the Housing First idea and model. And he said that he had asked about this these metrics and he wasn't satisfied with the answers so yeah i i mean maybe mayor coffin is just not gonna ever be into the housing first model um
0: he's really a bootstraps guy
1: yeah i i don't know um
0: uh something else i wanted to talk we're talking about the politics of mm -hmm. this um with the ubi with denver the city of Denver embracing this idea, Connor, I have to say I'm a little skeptical that Mayor Hancock on his way out is like, this sounds great. Like this feels like one last good PR push to me if I'm being extremely cynical as I tend to be with him. Why do you, what do you think about that, this timing?
1: I mean, I'm super cynical of politicians too, just because when you, when you cover politics, The only natural um, way to view politics and politicians (laughs) is from a cynical perspective. But I think I think Hancock is evolving on homelessness and housing um, in his last term as mayor, kind of very late in his third term. He mentioned when he did a state of the city speech a couple months ago, he talked. He essentially admitted that sweeps were just kicking the. The can down the road and re- weren't really achieving anything, um, mm. which I was kind of struck by him admitting that publicly. And then, <laughs> I mean, even if this is part of his motivation is for this good PR, it's like
0: okay, whatever.
1: I mean, that's whatever poli- gets that's the poli- job done. That's a lot of politicians. The work that they do in a nutshell. It's good PR. Um, makes them look good, makes them a viable candidate in the future. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I feel
0: you. It's like, okay, well, if that that is what it is, fine, but at least we're getting universal basic income out of it. Paul, what do you think?
2: Um, I think he's scoring points. It's like a short-term win, and he doesn't have to deal with the consequences. Yeah. Like, yeah. I That's don't think nice. this is a problem that you solve with these, like, limited run like, poorly funded programs. Yeah. Like, I've heard a lot of great stories about people who have got a lot out of these safe outdoor spaces we've been talking about the last couple of years, but yeah, it's, like, not the scale to make a real difference. And it's, it's, like, the small, shiny thing to look at that chips away at the actual big, consistent funding stream you need to house people. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm looking at for politicians, you know, coming up in the next election. I want to hear people brave enough to be unpopular, to mm. not talk about the the list of all these smaller, but maybe exciting new ideas to try and someone to take a, a hard line. This is the way. That's like,
0: going to be really tough, Paul. I will. I just think again about working on a campaign for a candidate that actively knew she was not going to win, but her agenda was to push ideas like that. And I worry that those radical ideas that could really change something are not going to be popular enough with the candidates that have the financial backing to yeah. get the word out to get elected. But you brought up Save Outdoor Spaces. Connor, you've covered these quite a bit. What do you think, how do they function when we look at something like housing first? Like, where where do they fit in the into the equation?
1: Well, I think... I, I think with these projects like safe outdoor spaces and this universal basic income project, or not universal, just this basic income project, it's they're kind of like large scale pilot projects, yeah. and um, it's it's yeah putting first foot uh, in the water. And so with safe outdoor spaces, they seem to make sense to a lot of the service providers right now, but none of them are saying, oh, this is this is our solution to homelessness. Safe outdoor spaces hopefully will be replaced maybe in the next five years, 10 years, um, just by housing. Yeah. And so there won't be a need for people staying in these ice fishing tents or now these upgraded um, units, these pallet shelters. Hopefully we don't need those at all because it's, it's way more dignifying for someone to be in those than it is to be getting harassed by people on the streets or cops or neighbors just living in a tent or living in a tarp. But it's way more dignifying to live actually in, you know, four walls and a Absolutely. roof over your head than it is in an ice fishing tent or a pallet shelter. So hopefully they become a thing of the past, not, not because... They don't work because it sounds like there's some really positive stories, but just because we won't need them.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I was skeptical at first of safe outdoor spaces because I felt like, why can't we just house people? But um, it's what we have and it's what we can do right now. And if we talk about how expensive it is to build housing, at least we can make it a little bit safer for folks to be free from harassment. I think, as, I think you make, the, that's the best point to me, Connor is at least folks are free from harassment.
1: And they can go to the, Go to the bathroom, right? And shower and <sighs> do wash all their the, face and do
0: um, all the basic things and
1: chill. Like, yeah, people deserve the right to sleep in sometimes and um, go to bed early or just relax.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Paul, Connor, thank you for joining me.
2: Thanks, Brie.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Thanks.
0: That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were Paul Caroli, Aaron O'Toole, and Lizzie Goldsmith. Peyton Garcia writes our morning newsletter. I'm your host, Bree Davies. Our music is by Los Mocochetes, with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren. If you haven't already, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at CityCast Denver and tell Mike Kaufman about us next time you see him. You can sign up for our daily newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. Bye.